Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I just want to talk about a few things before we get started with today's topic. Um, if you haven't already signed up for the newsletter, please do that now. Um, it's something that I'm sending out every Monday. It's uh, a wonderful way to start your week. I give book recommendations, uh, newspaper articles about the history of California that I'm enjoying, and then I usually talk about something related to current events uh, that we can trace back uh, through California history. Um, it's a wonderful quick read, and it's really easy to sign up. You just click the newsletter link on the description in today's show, and then you can sign up. I'm very excited to announce also that I have a few interview episodes coming up with two uh, California history professors, both from California, working on interesting subjects. Uh, those shows should be coming out in late September, and I'm really excited to bring you uh, different programming from experts uh, that uh, gives you a broader understanding and picture of history. All right, today we're talking about the Adams-Onus Treaty, um, and then the larger uh, history of the United States treaties kind of leading up to uh, really uh, America starting to move towards uh, conquest and control of Alta California or California, the state that we know today. So let's get started. Premeditation is something that is difficult to prove, but premeditation can have a huge impact upon the consequences of a crime. In California, the nuances get more complicated. Capital murder is a murder in which a person kills a certain person uh, or for a certain reason, and that person is then eligible for either life without the possibility of parole or the death penalty meaning that a person's motive changes the length or the consequence of a sentence. Then you have first-degree murder, which is classified as a killing that is willfully deliberate and premeditated. There was a plan or a thought process involved, and it was carried out. If convicted, first-degree murder carries a 25-to-life sentence. Then there is second-degree murder, or murder without a plan something that just happened in the moment. If convicted, this carries a 15-year-to-life sentence, followed by manslaughter, which has the lowest sentence of all of taking a human life. Now, I'm not a criminal lawyer or in law enforcement, but what I can tell you from this underlying philosophy here is that intent is important. Intent can mean the difference between 10 years in a cell in a California prison or sitting on death row in San Quentin waiting to be executed by the state. And intent matters in history, too. We want to ascribe motives to actions. We want to understand causes. I just finished reading a book called The Zimmerman Telegram by Barbara Tuckman. She's a masterful storyteller and a writer I look up to in terms of how she can transform history something dry and mundane into something like a Jean Le Carré spy novel. Uh, in this book, she lays out the complicated events that led to the U.S. involvement in World War I. She was attempting to trace those events through documents that appear to show the intentions of various government officials. The U.S., led by Pre President Woodrow Wilson, 
wanted to avoid war if at all possible. Ultimately, however, a telegram establishing the intent to carry out an action pulled the United States into war after months, if not years, of intrigue leading up to it. Now, there are certainly accidents of history um, where historians will read uh, things retroactively in historical characters, uh, showing that a series of actions led to an outcome and then assume intent. But it's quite possible those series of actions uh, were not part of a grand plan. And even if people don't use the word intent, uh, much older historians uh, before our time period uh, would use terms like providence, um, which is a way of saying that what happened was God's will or the will of the universe pulling that individual towards this greater goal or action. Some evangelical Christians today use that same type of logic when they talk about Donald Trump. Even though he's a somewhat, and I use somewhat loosely, even though he's a pretty immoral human being, so evangelical Christians argue, God uses immoral people. Now, this long, complicated, and kind of discursive prologue here has a point, believe it or not. And it is related to the concept of manifest destiny. Now, manifest destiny is one of those concepts that's been a term used like a blanket to wrap a bunch of competing interests and motives that would eventually drive the U.S. to invade, conquer, and annex all of the land to the Pacific. Now, let's be clear. Whatever ideology you use to describe the actions of the U.S., the U.S. became what it is today through the wars of aggression with native peoples in Mexico. But today, we're going to focus on the U.S. government's relationship with Mexico through the context of treaties. And I bring up Manifest Destinies to simply say this. Um, while intent is important, and I want to focus on that as much as I can, today we're going to talk about what the U.S. did. We're going to talk about actions. We're going to talk about breaking of treaties. And we're going to talk about not the expressed intent, you know, the one that's publicly stated, um, but the implicit intent. Okay. The first treaty that we'll talk about here is the Adams-Onus Treaty. This treaty ceded Florida to the United States following a series of border disputes. Um, these border disputes were initiated by expansionist hungry settlers of the United States uh, living in parts of this area. Now, in order to understand this treaty, though, we must go back to the Treaty of Paris, uh, the one that ended the American Revolutionary War. One of the terms of the Treaty of Paris was to return the territory of Florida to the Spanish government. The Spanish had lost the territory the first time to the British after the Spanish allied themselves, allied themselves uh, to, the, to France during the French-Indian War, or the Seven Years' War. In fact, until the U.S. would receive Florida in 1819, there were many disputes over the northern border that lay relative to Georgia. Um, furthermore, Florida was actually divided into two Spanish colonies, West and East Florida. American settlers began to pile into West Florida and began resisting Spanish government rule, which led to a series of crises. 
The United States, during the terms of James Madison, attempted to, attempted to annex West Florida, claiming that it was actually, in fact, part of the Louisiana Purchase. Congress gave Madison approval to take control of that territory, and they took much of it against the will of the increasingly feeble Spanish. All of these disputes and internal fighting within the Spanish colonies was for the most part resolved with the Adams-Onis Treaty, which ceded West and East Florida to the United States for some monetary compensation, as well as the removal of U.S. claims on Tejas, or Texas. This treaty set a firmer border uh, between the Spanish claims in North America and the United States. However, that would be called into question, obviously, just a few years later when Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821. Now, let's move on to the Treaty of Limits. Following Mexico's war from independence, removing Spain from the equation and the territory, that territory then became its, a new country. It became the country of Mexico. Consequently, uh, the Mexican government began immediate diplomatic communications with the United States, its border country. These diplomatic communications were in regards to the boundaries of Mexico and the United States. Likely the Mexican government, knowing that the expansionist tendencies in the United States wanted to quickly and firmly establish these lines to avoid them being blurred in the same way that the lines were blurred in east or in northern Florida between the state of Georgia and Florida. Now, uh, the Treaty of Limits, which will be signed in 1828, maintained a similar boundary of territory between Spain, what Spain and the United States had agreed upon in the Adams-Onis Treaty. But the, the U.S., in much a similar way, uh, allowed American settlers, by not stopping them or preventing them from doing this, to undermine this first treaty that the United States would sign with Mexico. American settlers in Texas uh, ultimately led an uprising uh, in 1836, which would lead to the independence of Texas as its own country, its own state, in 1836. Now, this event might have been disapproved of by the American government, the United States government, uh, which would have signaled to the Mexican government um, that they had no intentions uh, to undermine the treaty that they had signed with Mexico in the future. But instead, what they did was that they recognized the independence of Mexico, which the Mexican government declared was a violation of the Treaty of Limits signaling to Mexico that the United States did not see Mexico as a sovereign nation whose borders and boundaries needed to be respected. Because let's be clear, these people that were operating in Texas in this insurrectionary stance towards the Mexican government were American settlers. And in a perfect mirror of history, the United States would annex, annex Texas almost a dec decade following, which would be the event in much the same way that that telegram almost a hundred or a little less than a hundred years later would be the event that would pull uh, the U.S. and Mexico into war. Now let's take a step back and look at this. In both situations, 
the U.S. made treaties with foreign governments, tacitly allowed citizens to undermine these treaties, and when the situation was deemed well-suited for U.S. interests, the U.S. would then move in forward in aiding and supporting the re rebellious and revolutionary attitudes and force um, of the people uh, that were undermining the opposing government. Now, there's a few different ways of looking at this. Some of you want to look at this through a conspiratorial lens that the government's plan was all along to take this land and simply went about it in a methodical way, pretending to be allied with these countries, but secretly undermining them behind their backs or in front of their faces, depending on which situation. Um, or you could take a stance of the fact that the U.S. government was just changing its stance as historical events took place that caused them to modify the treaty. The one thing that we can agree on here is that the treaties were just for show, ultimately, or were just temporary placeholders until the United States was ready to strike. Uh, the treaties, whether they were for show or not, they were merely pieces of paper that the United States didn't respect, which is ultimately ironic in U.S. history because U.S. history, um, or the United States government, rather, is built on things written on a piece of paper. Now, the U.S. has not respected treaties with many different groups, and probably the ones uh, that has respected the least are treaties with Native Americans. A month and a half ago, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, ruled that much of eastern Oklahoma was actually Native American reservation land. The trial emerged from jurisdictional dispute around a criminal court case in Oklahoma, which ultimately led to jurisdictional questions which led to the case getting to the Supreme Court. It's a dramatic turn in the history of Oklahoma and the history of the United States relating to Native Americans. Now, the U.S. has had a long history of establishing treaties with Native people and then giving tacit approval to white settlers to effectively break these treaties by settling on Native land. For example, the Removal Act of 1830, which quote-unquote purchased land from Native people east of the Mississippi in return for the land west of it that they got to receive, apparently, was immediately uh, broken, almost immediately, um, and that land that was given to Native people was encroached and ultimately taken by white settlers. The U.S. also created uh, invalid treaties or treaties that were not ethical, like the Treaty of the Black Hills of South Dakota of 1874 to purchase mineral rights to the gold that was there, but that treaty was only signed by a small portion of um, Sioux people who were living there, even though uh, there was a law in place saying that three-fourths of the Sioux people needed to sign it in order for the treaty to be valid. And then, in an ultimate slap in the face of Native American people, in 1902 and 1903, the Supreme Court ruled that it was legal, legal for the government, the United States government, to modify existing treaties with Native people without their consent. Ultimately, laws are laws only if they are enforced. There are many laws that sit in the statute books of many cities, states, and countries that go unenforced. But treaties are something different. 
respecting treaties ultimately determines the character of a country. And this is one of the areas that should remain a permanent place of discomfort and ultimately embarrassment in our history. Now, how does this all relate back ultimately to the history of California, which is what this podcast is about? Ultimately, this episode is setting the stage for the next few episodes when we talk about the settlers, travelers, and explorers of American citizenship who would go west to California and become some of the early Californians, uh, part of the United States. All of that exploration and migration would occur under the Treaty of Limits that the United States negotiated with Mexico. But in many other situations, we have individuals acting outside the bounds of the law, um, with the government unlikely to enforce existing treaty law. And we don't think of explorers as individuals breaking laws. We don't think of them as uh, settlers as and explorers and trappers as people paving the way for invasion and colonialism. But given that the U.S. has quite a checkered history of treaties, this is in many ways uh, what they should become in our minds. Uh, now, when we meet some of these explorers and settlers, we must keep in mind that they are people responding to incentives and are trying to do the best by themselves and their families and their inflated idea of what the United States means. They also are driven by this idea that by going to these places, they're bringing freedom and liberty uh, from sea to shining sea. And again, like many of our stories that we've talked about f before, um, ultimately, history is a mixed bag, complicated with beauty, violence, virtue, and vice. Some things are historical accidents, and some things are first-degree murder. And ultimately, us as our own individual historians looking at history need to decide for ourselves. Until next time.